kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who have practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued, and they counted the value and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was once preaching a or teaching a, rather a class, seminary class on preaching, and he said this to his students, quote, the most urgent need in the church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need of the world also. And without wanting to be overly negative or critical, I believe that that's the reason why the church in the West is largely weak today, because that need is so rarely met. There is so little preaching today. In Amos chapter 8, God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And although we don't live in the immediate fulfillment of that passage, there is nevertheless a famine in our land for the hearing of the words of God. True preaching is preaching that God owns. True preaching occurs when God validates the proclamation of his word and sends the worshippers home saying to themselves, I just heard God speak to me. I got in trouble recently from one of you because you said that 
my sermon didn't have any Spurgeon quotes or stories. And uh, so this one, this one's for you. Uh, it'd been scheduled to preach at the Crystal Palace, this unbelievably grand edifice. It could seat over 20,000 people. I think at this stage, he was still a teenager. And on a Saturday afternoon, he found the mark in which he was scheduled to preach. And he wanted to test the acoustics. He wanted to know if his barrel chest would be able to fill this place. Remember, no amplification back in the 19th century. And so he stood and as loud as he could, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not knowing that a man was working in one of the balconies. And he came down looking like he'd just seen a ghost. And he came up to Spurgeon, and Spurgeon said to him, can I help you, sir? And he said, I, I just heard the voice of God. <laughs> and he said, what did God say to you? And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Spurgeon said, that was the voice of God. <laughs> and he went home, and that man was gloriously saved. And came back and had a story to tell. Well, we continue in the book of Acts tonight. And the point of our passage is this. God validates the proclamation of his word. God validates the proclamation of his word. Now, remember last time Paul had left his ministry partners, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus, Rome's capital city in Asia. Uh, Paul had preached to the Jews in the synagogue, and some of them, it appeared, had started to be strangely warm to this Jesus of whom Paul preached. They pleaded with him, stay with us and tell us more about this Christ. And Paul said to them, I'll return to you if God wills. And God did will, because after he left them, he came back to them. And you remember last Sunday morning we heard that 12 disciples of John the Baptist were converted and became disciples of Jesus the Christ. And as his ministry in Ephesus continues in our passage today, what we see as his ministry continues again is that God validates the proclamation of his word. Number one, with miraculous power. Number two, with genuine power. And number three, with converting power. And my hope and prayer for this message today is that as we hear all about what God did all those years ago in Ephesus, we'd be, we'd, we'd be that much more desirous for God to do something similar here in Hoylake and for God to validate his work among us in this building and to them outside of these four walls. You see, friends, I can study, I can read, I can exegete, I can write manuscripts, but only God can give the growth. And God validates the proclamation of his word, number one, with miraculous power. Look with me at verse 8 again. It says, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuaded them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now the easiest thing for us to do with this portion of God's word would be to completely miss the point. 
we read this passage and we're just drawn to the handkerchiefs and the aprons. Tell me more about these handkerchiefs and aprons. But you notice how the reference to these extraordinary miracles comes on the back of opposition. Those in the synagogue speaking evil of the way and stubbornly refusing the Messiah. And so in other words, God's, God was bearing witness to the truth of Paul's message with miraculous power. To say to all who would see and to say to all who would be healed, this man's gospel is true. And this man's Christ is the Christ. And this gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and then also to the Greek. What's the point for us then since we don't have these handkerchiefs or aprons? Well, it's it's, it's this, since those types of miracles aren't the norm today, we need to be as committed to prayer as possible because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. Think, think about this. If Paul was a man of prayer, if Paul was a man often and frequently on his knees, weeping over the enemies of the cross and was performing these miracles then how much more should we be men and women of prayer who are not performing these miracles at all? Because you see, apart from our changed lives and apart from our love for one another, we only have an invisible message to proclaim. You know, Mark knew a pastor who passed away recently, and so Mark emailed me with a list of his books that were being given away. And so naturally, I just grabbed all the Spurgeon books I possibly could. Uh, But I also got a tiny little book called The 59 Revival, which is a collection of the accounts of the revival that took place in Northern Ireland in 1859. And before the revival, four men were wonderfully saved. And this is what they did. Quote, during the long winter of 1857 and 1858, every Friday evening, these young men gathered an armful of peat each, that's just stuff you can use to make fire, and taking their Bibles, made their way to the old schoolhouse. There they read and meditated upon the scriptures of truth, and with hearts aflame with the pure first love, poured out their prayers to the God of heaven. The peats made a fire in the schoolhouse grate and warmed their bodies from the winter's chill, but their prayers brought down unquenchable fire from heaven, which set all Ulster ablaze for God and warmed with saving rays at least 100,000 souls. These young converts were convinced of three great fundamentals, and upon these their prayer and fellowship meeting was based. They believed in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of the Holy Scripture, and the secret of holy supplication. And these three great truths not only characterized the prayer meeting, but the whole subsequent revival movement. No miracles, no handkerchiefs, no aprons, Four men on their knees and 100,000 souls saved. So can I say, I love our prayer meetings, by the way. I love how well attended they are. I love how fervent they are. I love how focused they can be. But friends, let's not underestimate the prayer meeting and let's not fall into the trap of believing that only the most confident among us can pray. We can all pray and we must all pray 
if we are to see any blessing at all. If you have a handkerchief or an apron that can heal the sick, come and talk to me after. If you don't, let's commit ourselves to prayer. God validates the proclamation of his word with miraculous power, but number two, with genuine power as well. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now this might possibly be the most unusual portion of the book of Acts. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. How was that a job? Could you imagine their LinkedIn profiles? What would they say? And why were they using Jesus' name? They were using Jesus' name as a good luck charm. They were using Jesus' name as like an incantation of sorts. It kind of reminds me of that time when the the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant to wage war against the Philistines. It was just this token of blessing or this symbol of, of good luck, as it were. And they weren't messianic believers in Jesus here in Acts. They were just seeking to capitalize on Jesus' name to boost their enterprise. They saw what was happening in and through the Apostle Paul, and they said, give us some of that for our sake. But what they planned for evil, God used for good. Because the result of this smackdown of their lives was the name of the Lord Jesus being lifted up and extolled. Why? Because their failure proved God's genuine power was on Paul and that God approved of his gospel. Now, to my knowledge, again, we don't have any itinerant Jewish exorcists here in Hoylake or here in uh, HEC. Again, if you are, come and speak to me after, please. Uh, So what's the relevance of all this for us? Well, there's both a challenge and there's an encouragement. The challenge is this. If we use Jesus' name for our personal gain, then God will not be with us and it will come back to bite us in the end. You seem to see this especially in pastors. It's cringeworthy. It's awful. There's this sense, I'm a pastor. I deserve more respect. I'm a pastor. I'm more important than you are. I'm a pastor. I'm a cut above the rest. It's not that I just happen to be gifted in these ways and I'm just a servant, just a steward of the mysteries of God. No, it's I'm a big deal. I'm a somebody. I want a title. And listen, I I want to preach better sermons. I want this church to grow. I want there to be more baptisms. I want there to be more members added. But the question is, why? The question is, for whose glory? And the psalmist answers that question, doesn't he? Not to us, oh Lord, not to us. But to your name be the glory. Lord, we just want to see, we want everyone to see how great you are. And we don't want any eyes on us at all. 
We just want all the attention, all the praise, all the glory on Christ. But then there's an encouragement here as well, isn't there? Because if we are about God's work for God's glory, then God will validate our work despite our weakness. And that's what we want, isn't it? You know, there's every reason to believe that the Apostle Paul entered Ephesus in much the same way that he entered Corinth in fear and trembling. And yet God validated the proclamation of his word through Paul with genuine power. And he even used demonic attack to rebound in more praise given to Jesus Christ. Because again, when the charlatans failed, they only served to affirm the true power of Paul's gospel. And if we'll do what God has called us to do, from pure hearts and from sound minds, then God will validate the proclamation of his word with genuine power, which is the only kind of power that we need. Do you know, since I moved into to Hoylake, one of the things I've noticed is just how quickly businesses come and go on the high street. It's quite amazing, isn't it, really? And because of where Gloria and I live, I would walk past that new uh, rug shop every day and the exterior the interior rather was just an out to the high nines the the branding on the exterior was perfect the, the rugs or the carpets were of this immensely high quality and I felt like I just wanted to be in the shop just to feel like I was part of something cool and new I didn't need a new rug or a new carpet or anything like that and yet it went in six months well here we are in a building that could do with a bit of work, a little bit more space, a little bit this and that, preaching Christ and him crucified. A message that is the aroma of death unto death to most. And we've been here for 50 years. How do you explain that? God validates the proclamation of his word. So if we want to be here for another 50 years, then let's get our motives right. And let's straighten out our intentions. And say, Lord, let my name perish and let Christ's name be exalted forever. Lord, let all flesh see your salvation. Lord, let your glory cover Hoylake as the waters cover the sea. And for more praise to be given to Christ. Well, lastly, with converting power. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so not only did God validate the proclamation of his word through or with miraculous power, with genuine power, but also with converting power as well, the lives of these Ephesian believers were radically and fundamentally and thoroughly changed. When Luke tells us here that 
A number of those who had practiced magic arts came and they, they brought their books together and they burned them and it was 50,000 pieces of silver to us. That sounds like an epic moment in the city of Ephesus. It sounds like a, a glorious start to a church plant. What an opportunity that would be to get the word out. But you know, 50,000 pieces of silver amounted to 150 years worth of wages. And that kind of radical fundamental change was brought about, why? Because God owned Paul's message. A greater power was at work. Ephesus was a hub of sorcery and witchcraft and the occult. It was steeped in the stuff. And so the burning of their books was really a burning of their old lives. It was a public renunciation of all that they'd previously held dear because they had a greater treasure buried in a field and they'd sold everything else to get it. So friend, let me ask you, has God validated his word in your life with converting power? If you want to know whether he has or whether he hasn't, you need to ask yourself, how has my life changed since I've made this profession of faith? Was I happy? Am I happy to burn my old life and crucify all that I used to hold dear in order to grab a hold of Jesus Christ and his saving gospel? Or am I basically the same but with a slice of Christianese added to my life on the weekend? And this is the, the great misunderstanding that I think so many have today when it comes to being a Christian. We, we think it's just about adding beliefs to our lives. We just add a bit of Christianity to the basket of our lives. But do you see how conversion is about dying to your old way of life and rising anew in Christ? What did Paul say to the Colossians? He said, you have died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Or what he said to the churches in the region of Galatia, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about saying, all right, God, I'll I'll give you my Sundays then. All right, then God, I'll, I, I'll give you 10% of my income then. And by the way, for us to refuse those things of God is to live in unrepentant sin. But when God validates the proclamation of his word in our lives with converting power, it's not that you're willing to give those things to God. It is that you want to give those things to God. It's that you can't give those things to God soon enough or quick enough or fast enough. And you end up singing, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. I've told you before about a thousand times that my favorite book is The Holy War by John Bunyan. It's January, okay? So you've got all year to read it. You can thank me later. And you remember hearing me say to the kids, it's this allegory, Mansoul is a picture of our souls, Diabolos is a picture of the devil, Diabolos has taken over Mansoul, Prince Emmanuel smashes in Eargate and he charges the city and then there's this showdown between the devil and the Lord Jesus Christ and Diabolos says to Prince Emmanuel, okay look, can't we just share Mansoul between us? Why don't, why don't you allow me to come back 
at certain times of the year or, or on weekends. And, and I'll have my times and you have your times. And Prince Emmanuel says, no, it's all or nothing. And then he says, okay, okay, what about just a little memento of my previous reign? What about a statue somewhere in Mansell? What about some engravings on on the walls? And and Prince Emmanuel says, no, 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 it's all or nothing. I'm either Lord here or I'm not. And when a person is changed from the inside out, they can't wait to drive Diabolos out and to bring Emmanuel in and to burn the books, to burn whatever it is that displeases him. So if you're here today and you're a professing Christian, please hear me when I say this. You cannot do Christianity on your terms. We do Christianity on his terms. It's Jesus' terms or it's no terms at all. And so if it's our books that displease him, we burn them. If it's our music that displeases him, we toss it. If it's our films or our TV programs that glory in the things that he hates, we turn it off and we turn our back on it. Not to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate that our salvation is real. But remember, losing your life to gain Christ is the best exchange you'll ever know. So friend, count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and you'll gain more than the universe itself. Friend, do you see enough value and enough worth and enough glory in Christ for you to be able to do that? Perhaps you'd say, I don't, but I want to. And to you, I would say this. If you want to see the glory of Christ, you must find him in his shame and humiliation the greatness and the glory and the wonder of Jesus is found at the cross. Not just in the heights and realms of heaven, but in the lowest place of crucifixion. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. But I want to close tonight by seeking to console the broken-hearted believer among us. Why do I want to do that? Maybe you're here tonight. You have died with Christ. Your old life is put behind you. Your new life is ahead of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and yet the life that you now live is a painful life. It is wall-to-wall internal agony. And you start to wonder, is it even worth following Jesus? I seek to bear my soul to people that I love in my life, but they never seem to understand. And friend, what I want to say to you is this, it is worth following Jesus because Jesus is worth it. Again, these immensely valuable books, what were they compared with him? And although faithfulness requires sacrifice so often, our sacrifices are worth it because Jesus is worth it. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he was infinitely worth the destruction of all of those books. And so he's infinitely worth all of the steps of your sacrifice now. Even though following Jesus makes life harder, not easier at times. And the glorious reality is if we will walk 
his path, then he will walk with us all the way. If God has validated the proclamation of his word in your life with converting power, he will keep you to the end because what he began, he will finish. And through the highs and the lows and the losses and the gains, no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck you from his hand. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's a message worth validating, isn't it, in our lives and hearts. Well, may God bless us as we think on these things. We're going to stand.